This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guest are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed, strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Globally, we hear a lot about transitioning to a low emissions future. How are FMCG companies, who rely heavily on the impact of their Scope 3 emissions, going to help support this transition? In today's chat, we delve a little bit deeper into what this transition to a low emissions future actually is, and how focusing on reducing emissions can actually create better business outcomes. I'm this week's host, Katie Vickers, and today we are joined by one of our own, Locke Monsborough, our Agricultural and Environmental Lead for Rabobank's Global Rural Business. Locke's a wealth of knowledge, so enjoy the chat. Hello, Locke. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Thanks, Cody. Pleasure to be here. Before we dive into things, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a bit of insight into your career to date and your current role at Rabobank? Hello, everyone. My name's Lachlan Monsborough. I'm currently the Agricultural and Environmental Lead for Rabo, I'm working with our global rural clients. For people that don't know, that's where we bank farmers and commercial farmers in Australia, New Zealand and the Americas. And we have about seven different countries that we're represented in there. I really look at in that role, how we're getting farm data around people's agricultural footprint and environmental footprint. And also key things in terms of how we're educating our, our rural leadership, so client-facing rural leadership on how we start to talk to farmers about that. I've been with Rabo for five years now, I think. My background is non-financial, so I've worked in um, different agronomy roles, commodity trading roles, so I'm not a financial services expert at all. Um, I've worked mainly... Um, in the tropical belt because I spent about 10 years working in cocoa and chocolate. So that's me. Nice. And what's your favourite chocolate bar, Locke? Oh, my favourite chocolate bar is probably some of the Sprungly stuff out of Zurich. So I was based in Zurich for a while. If you ever want to put a hole in your wallet, you go to the store there. (laughs) Nice, nice. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning, Locke. Globally, across all the sectors, We're hearing a lot about the transition, transitioning to a low emissions future and helping clients move from the brown to the green or the green to the greener. Can we just start off by explaining like what we actually mean by a transition and what are we actually referring to when we talk about green and brown? Well, to put it simply, any business, irrespective of agriculture, probably has some sort of emissions from their business operations at the moment. And if we're to meet the, the international conventions as they are, whether that be the Paris Climate Accord or more granular conventions specific to industry, we need farmers, banks, any industry needs to start looking at how they can reduce their emissions. 
And as a bank, we're no different. One, from our operations, but two, probably more importantly, where are our clients at on that trajectory to reduce their emissions? So there are very few industries, Katie, that are zero at the moment from an emissions point of view. So I don't see as sort of the debate around brown to green, green to brown, all that sort of stuff as being, let's say, useful in this. If you've got emissions, you've probably got to do something about it over the next uh, 30 years. And how as we as one of our clients' partners in business, can we help that change or that transition? And when you say transition, do you mean that's just literally how do we start helping farmers or businesses go from a higher emission running operation to a lower? Is that what the word transition really means? For me, yes. It can mean different technologies. It can mean just reducing that emissions footprint as well. So I think it's horses for courses. Every different industry will have their different pathway and that can be geo-specific, it can be industry-specific, it can be technology-specific. But I think, yes, for me, transition means how you're going to reduce this footprint and over what time period, what capital requirements, um, what practice changes, all that stuff gets put into that one bucket. Nice. And we know businesses are obviously setting strategies and targets to get to that net carbon zero by 2050. And we know in particular that FMCG companies are really reliant on their scope three emissions reducing. What does this practically look like from your perspective And how do you think that these companies are actually going to help support the transition without pushing all of the reliability back onto our farmers and growers? First things first is the requirement for education in terms of what are we actually looking at? Unfortunately, probably let's say in the last 20 years with, let's say, global warming becoming a far greater concern amongst all levels of society, there have been opportunists, both commercial opportunists and political opportunists to either exaggerate the debate or diminish the debate depending on their vested interests or who they're spruiking to politically. We're over the the hump of that, if you like, or or the peak, let's call it the peak climate wars, at least in Australia. (laughs) He's hoping. Yeah, he's hoping. And now it focuses back on, so what can we do and what's my impact? So first, understand where your business's number is today and understand then what are your mitigation options. I mean, those two things are critical in terms of any business thinking about, okay, where do I go from here? And my second question sort of as part of that is, you know as well as I do that we still need products to be able to produce nutritious food to feed our growing population and particularly in New Zealand, Australia, we have quite niche markets. How do you think that we're going to manage the fine balance of meeting the needs of feeding people with quality, nutritious food versus making sure that we have really low emissions future and and businesses that are meeting that net zero target? I think what industry is actually doing well, and this is agriculture, what industry is actually doing well is understanding the the technologies that are available to make those emissions reductions, but that don't impact on, let's say, the productive capacity of our agricultural systems. So in that regard, I think what we're not doing well is working out who's going to pay for it. Now, that has been an issue right from, I guess, day dot 
in the world. I don't know when it started, but when consumers started to ask for improved environmental credentials around certain products, we've always struggled with who's going to pay for it. Now, that probably started I don't know, sometime around Rainforest Alliance and bananas in Costa Rica and some of the Central American states when the demand for improved human rights and and environmental outcomes from those plantations started in the late 90s, early 2000s. There could have been precedents before that. But that curve of, all right, you have the early adopters, they get a premium, but then it becomes normal in the market And where does this interact between people wanting to pay for this or basic compliance within the industry? That is always something that's, let's say, a little bit grey. I don't see emissions and the emissions footprint of food being anywhere different from that. I know at the moment in supermarkets in Australia you can buy a lower-carbon produce at, at a certain premium, but that is probably only, I don't know, 1%, 2% of the volume currently being sold. Now, if the market requires us to be 15, 20, 30% have those, let's call them emissions credentials alongside their product, I'm sure the large fast-moving consumer good brands will probably tell you through their market research that maybe people aren't going to want to pay for that and they just expect it as a credential. So keen for your personal perspective on this and like, who should be paying for that? Because as we discussed earlier, like for most of these FMCG companies, their scope three emissions are a large portion of their footprint and those end up being farmers. In our situation, obviously New Zealand farmers and obviously for you in Australia, they've already got a lot on their plate. And as a generalisation, a good portion of them are doing what they can to start improving their environmental footprint. But these things do come at a cost. Really keen just for your personal perspective on where you, where you think that cost should sit. I think the cost's got to sit so that it doesn't penalise farmers. And I think the main thing that governments need to look at is how can those that get on with reducing their emissions be on the same level playing field without penalising farmers on the other side. So if you look at, say, Australian agriculture, I'll just talk about Australia because it's where I am today, I think we've got the lowest use of uh, low nitrification-based urea fertiliser in the in the OECD. That's because we don't have legislation. Now, the argument's been, well, there's going to be, okay, if it costs 50 bucks a tonne more, then we reduce the competitiveness of our farmers in the export market for those that don't have to use this fertiliser. Or we create a perverse incentive where obviously the generic urea is cheaper, so um, the guys who are selling generic urea are at an advantage, right? So I think that these sort of, let's say, on individual issues, the market incentives have to be really thought through. I don't think we can expect consumers to play for it, but I do think it revolves around how different, let's say, polluting uh, either inputs or products are tariffed or taxed and how it keeps farmers competitive. These things have to be taken seriously by government and by blocks of trade like the European Union. I guess also there are plenty of examples, and I'm sure you've got some, of farmers who have been looking at creating a more efficient farming system over the years and have also seen their profit 
scale up versus taking a hit. Um, I think there's a massive generalisation that as soon as you have to start reducing your emissions, then you're going to lose money on the bottom line. And I know there are examples that that isn't the case. Do you have any sort of things you want to add there from that perspective? In that case, I think what people have to scratch their head and think about is what are greenhouse gas emissions? And generally, they're just waste of some sort of chemical or biological process, right? So methane is the heat waste in a cow's rumen. Now, if you can work out how some of that methane goes back into actually putting weight on or producing more milk or whatever it is, and I'm talking at a very high level here, so I'm sure there'll be I'm sure there'll be some pretty scientific people who rip shreds through me. But at the end of the day, a lot of these processes are just waste. In the case of fertilizer, again, nitrogen going in the atmosphere instead of going to the plant is waste, right? So if it's diesel emissions, if it's residue emissions, whatever the emission is, these are basically waste products out of the chemical process. So I think farmers who've worked out how to optimise some of these chemical processes, whether it be through the better use of fertiliser, so they apply less and more often to reduce waste at the right timing and really calibrate it to soil moisture, temperature, all those sort of things, have actually found themselves to be far more efficient and mainly reduce cost on their fertiliser bill. So I think in the New Zealand environment, people who understand that very, very well have probably seen over 15 to 20 years a significant reduction in some of their fertiliser bills for a similar agronomic or dry matter output. Yeah, and I think given the inflation environment and the increased cost of inputs at the moment here in New Zealand, it is creating an opportunity for farmers to maybe think differently about their fertiliser applications or, or what they might be, want to be doing with their soils to generate crops in the future. So, yeah, I guess markets can help people think differently as well. That's a key thing with electrification, where you can use solar panels to replace basically fossil fuel electrification, whether it be on farm vehicles, uh, heating processes on farm, all those different things, where that's feasible, where your climate allows it, these things have gotten obvious, let's say cost benefit as well. Yeah, and I think also it's about creating resilient farming systems, like systems that can go through the ebbs and flows and aren't so reliant on external inputs coming into the system. Obviously, you know, we, we're going to need them, but making sure you've got a robust system, I suppose. Well, I think just on that point, anything where you are replacing something, an input that has, let's say, market forces driving your price for something where you've just got a a constant cost base, whether it be the, let's say, the depreciation on a solar panel, right, you're in control. Where you're reliant on a an external input which has both supply and demand and speculation impacting the surprise, you're absolutely the definition of a price taker. Now, from your global perspective, given that you sort of hop all over the world, what are you seeing in terms of tools to help farmers transition outside of sustainable finance? Obviously, sustainable finance has got a massive role to play here in terms of impact, but it's certainly not everything, and I'm keen just to hear what um, you've seen from across the globe. I think everybody now is getting on the page and starting to know their number, right? So 
Most mature markets now have farm-based emission calculators so that farmers can actually plug in the inputs and the productivity of their farm and get a number of terms of what their total emissions are and what their emissions intensity is. That's a critical thing for us in ag so that farmers can actually start from that's point A, right? Now, in terms of getting towards point B, a much lower footprint in terms of the emissions, Farmers are really looking at the balance between what they can do to reduce emissions, but also what they can do to sequester carbon, uh, not only for their own emissions, but for market opportunities as well. And that's universal, right? So across farming, that's universal. Different markets are at different stages. I mean, Australia's had the Emissions Reduction Fund for nine years, where let's say Brazil, for example, a key export market in the world is just starting to gather speed on, um, let's say, a silk sequestration and uh, vegetative carbon markets as well. So I think they're the emerging trends. Every single country seemingly got slightly different bits of legislation or the rules that they're putting around those different points of engagement. So that's a, how can I say, they're, let's say, the the structures that are um, behind some of the, the things that are going on in the financial world as well. Mm. I think one other point that you and I are both obviously quite passionate about is education. I think for me, that's a really interesting tool to help transition people. So whilst sustainable finance or technology might be tools to help support farmers and growers, equally education has a vital role to play in that. Have you got any perspectives you want to bring to that comment? Yeah, sure. So I think I sound like a broken record a little bit, but know your number is the first bit of the education. And then once you know your number, how are you going to think about what investments you're going to make to reduce your footprint? And that's difficult because some of them have got high levels of capital required and a longer term investment. There's other things that farmers can change in their practice today that'll have a, a quick payoff. Now, One of the things we see across cropping across the world is the adoption of spot and spray technology. That's where you've got sensors out the front of your spray equipment, which sends information back to the sprayer about which jets to spray on the individual plants. Now, not only does that have a massive herbicide saving, but if you're using less herbicide, then you're using less diesel, you're using less emissions that created the, the herbicide. So there's flow on effects there as well. An investment like that might cost you $250,000, but that's something that you'll pay back quite quickly just on, let's say, your herbicide cost alone. So there are these things where people might say, okay, is this purely an emissions play or is there ways that I can reduce emissions and also reduce my broader environmental footprint with the technologies I'm adopting as well? And what are the FMCG companies going to be doing? I mean, we always use the example of Nestle, but it's a good one that they have said by 2030 that 50% of their, I think it's 50% of their produce was going to be coming from regenerative agriculture. Like, do you think those businesses will be investing in their farmers and growers? Like, will, will they be giving money essentially to help them to implement those practices? What's your view on that? I think there will be, whether it's, let's call it material or not, is probably a case that we could debate over a bottle of scotch for um, quite a few evenings, right? Um, (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) 
Yeah. What I think's most important is to think about, okay, who are they going to be working with that actually supplies them either raw commodities or and or uh, semi-processed commodities for their finished goods to be able to facilitate that change? What I would say is Nestle aren't going to pick up the whole tab, all right? They want to see investment from the Cargill's, the JBS's, the, the supply chain partners, the supply chain, the Fonterra's in the New Zealand context, right? They want to see investment from them. They want to see investment from farmers that love to see a bit of taxpayers' money being used as well. And then I reckon they'll come to the party as well. Will they go it alone? I'd be very surprised and I'm not sure because the risk isn't entirely theirs either. I'm not sure that they should go it alone either. So I think to use something that... Um, I don't know. I hope people aren't instantly sceptical on. If we don't have partnerships and people and companies and working together across the um, supply chain, I think the rate of change will be limited and slower. So I think it's that supply chain approach that has to take place. Yeah, it's the the million dollar word of collaboration, isn't it, that we um, so often talk about. But maybe the this conversation, the climate conversation will help to encourage that collaboration across the, the value chain. Locke, what do you think farming will look like in 2040, 2050 when we are at a more low emissions future? I just think that farmers in, let's say, mature markets, so far OECD countries will have to be providing a full environmental footprint to their supply chain. And obviously the benchmark, those with the lowest environmental footprint for the greatest productive output, they will be the, let's say, the preferred suppliers of those global food supply chains. So I think the world's just way too diverse to make any sort of comments around, well, is regenerative agriculture going to win the race or is organic agriculture or any, any of the adjectives that we use to describe it. But I do think if we can't get that right, then the supply chain promises and not only supply chains promises, but the global promises, things like the Paris Climate Accord make, are probably a long way from fruition. I think the biggest thing that we've got to work out, which will emerge over the next 10 or 15 years, is the balance between agriculture and biodiversity and how we integrate biodiversity into our agricultural systems or how we don't because it's just not possible. We can't get that optimum output and then we have to put aside land for conservation. These are things that I see as, let's say, almost written in stone already that we will have to provide detailed footprint analysis as we get closer to 2050, with the benchmark being that who can provide the most with the least footprint as being the, um, the leaders and the preferred suppliers to those supply chains. Yeah, and you don't think that we will be farming crickets or anything? Like you think that the demand for that animal protein or, or fibre is still going to be as important as it is today? You should never say never, but I think our cultures, our human cultures are so rich in, let's say, celebrating food. And if we turn food into something like concrete or something like... Um, a generic industrial product that we're meant to just um, turn the senses off and um, consume, if you will. I think we're missing out on one of the key elements of what it means to be human. So 
could be vastly wrong, but and there are a few future sci-fi movies that sort of place us in a world where food just becomes a part of a daily process, almost a routine process rather than something we enjoy in our lives. And the sort of dystopian look at society or the view of what that might look like. And I don't think it's somewhere we want to go. And that's why I say I think the balance between biodiversity and agriculture or the impact on biodiversity and agriculture becomes critical because to take away the sensory elements of food would be quite joyless and we've got to be quite we're very mindful of that. I know certainly the French and Italian communities wouldn't survive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. A future without whining and dining doesn't sound like a future for me, to be honest. No, exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's been super valuable and I've been writing a few notes as we've been going. Always learn something from you. One of the key takeaways for me is that everyone is at a different stage globally, but it's really about understanding what your numbers are in your business, understanding that you can then create efficiencies or business efficiencies from understanding that. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really cool. And hopefully we'll have you back sometime in the future on our podcast. Well, my pleasure, Katie, and um, to all the listeners, um, please start because it's, I think, once farmers get into the actual, the creative process of thinking about how their farm systems can change, there's a lot to like. So I just encourage you on it. Thank you for listening to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.